Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to successful craft beer brewers, brewery owners, and successful entrepreneurs beyond the world of craft brewing. I'm here in the tap room with our co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. What's up, John? Who's our first guest this week? Our first guest founded Horace Aged Ales in 2015 in Oceanside, California. A 100% barrel-aged brewery which uses a variety of wine and spirit barrels, exotic fruit adjuncts, and spontaneous fermentation to add a rich complexity of flavors to their ales. Their beers have garnered national acclaim and numerous awards. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Kyle Harrop. Thank you very much for joining us. Finally, we were able to uh, piece this all together. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it, it's been, a, been a long time coming. So... We'll kind of jump right in. I kind of read that your first attempt at home brewing was actually a clone of Goose Island's Honkers Ale. And, like, this is a question that we ask everybody. Like, how did that first batch go? And how close did you think you got to the original? <laughs> oh, not close at all to the original, but um, it was drinkable. You know, I think that's a pretty easy style of beer to brew at home and not not completely botch it right um so just coming out with something that you could drink and not get sick from i think was a success right um it definitely wasn't a uh monumental beer in any capacity but um you know i i know we've talked about home brewing and stuff in the past i i definitely learned something every single batch I did, you know, you go into that mindset. We kind of like started brewing in that, uh, super high IBU day. And yes. it was like, Oh, I'm going to just keep adding hop to this IPA. Cause <laughs> it's going to make it hop here. Like, yep. Something in five much as you should during the boil. And you're wondering why it feels like you're licking pine needles when the beer's ready. So, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> No, I, yeah, I feel you on that. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, like, for me, I homebrewed for a long time, um, almost 10 years. And uh, I think towards the end, kind of when I got back into it, was really the point where I was like, wow, all these people, they're either, like, blowing smoke or they're really enjoying this beer. And it, it was a big stout that I put in, a um, like, a little five-gallon Barrel. barrel from yep. the, the homebrew shop. I just kind of went with it from there. I was always making mixed firm beers at home just because I was super into uh, trying to build my own yeast strain and messing with temperatures and seeing all that. Um, I love sour beer. I still do. But um, yeah, I think definitely like the homebrewing was a learning Slash hobby for probably the first eight years and then got pretty serious in the last few. Nice. Nice. So actually you and I share kind of a common background in accounting. Are are you still employed yep. as, as an accountant for 
the aerospace company? And do you want to give them a shout no, out? So on my no, <laughs> on my own, I um, <laughs> been it's been about three years since I uh, quote unquote retired from Northrop Grumman. I was there for fourteen years total. Um, wow, I wore a lot of hats. I went. Uh, you know, I worked on the F-35 fighter jet and F-18 and the B-2. And then most of my career was in NASA-related pr- programs, so a lot of space stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I managed a lot of people at given times. I was a sole person in a department at other times. Wow. So uh, definitely a very broad career in that sense and it's funny you know accounting is is a very broad term in aerospace um and i know we've talked about what you did in the past too and yeah. it's very different i almost turned a computer programmer by the end or an sap specialist wow. which is a, a program from Germany. wow wow so, so when you know i mean through this i mean obviously i think you had said like towards the end of your home brewing after like that decade of home brewing is when you kind of turned on the light of really thinking about opening a brewery. I mean, was it towards the end of that or did you have earlier inclinations that you. I always say it was kind of like a perfect storm with what happened. So my wife and I got engaged. Um, She had the logo and the name and everything kind of put on pint glasses and shirts for me as our wedding gift. Oh, wow. And I was like, Oh, cool. At the time, Hey, I'm going to have branded homebrew. That's pretty cool. Um, fast forward weeks after our daughter's born, and I went in for a physical, and they found a bunch of tumors in my neck, and um, it was a pretty bad health scare, but I came out of it clean, and I was just sitting there kind of like, I really want to do something in beer. Um I need to find a way to make it work with my current career working full-time in aerospace. So right. the whole business model is driven by being able to survive doing both things at once. Right. Right. And your goal was, which uh, you can kind of get into why, why was it your goal when you started Horace to really take stainless out of the equation? Yeah. So mostly, um, financial reasons here right um there was over a hundred breweries in our county and i had a lot of friends in the industry and they all offered for me to use their equipment because they flat out didn't have enough you know beer to make or they just had open tanks so um my goal was to build something around that and not take on that huge financial burden. Um, and I know you, you and Maria have seen my spot. It, it hasn't changed much since the beginning, other than a couple of large fooders um, and a lot more storage space. But it, um, you know, coming out of COVID and seeing everybody and how, you know, the business has changed, everyone's like, wow, you really you know, made a good decision on how you did it. And I was like, oh, you know, it was luck of the draw because I did this business so I could work in another business simultaneously. And it kind of worked out. And COVID, I think the big thing it caused for me, you know, 70% of my production was going into kegs and going straight to Disneyland in Anaheim. Wow. 
and that completely stopped when the parks closed. Um, so I pivoted to packaging everything. And uh, in the past few months, especially, like, glass has gone up significantly. I feel like every single ingredient other than vanilla, which is odd. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. um, you know, logistics, freight, like, everything is just through the roof expensive. And I'm, you know very grateful that the the route I took in opening Horace and the you know the whole business model is what it is because a lot of my friends around me here are really struggling and especially with rents going up and stuff so um, I've stayed really small I still have the the bottle club um, it's 400 people in the one tier and 200 in the other so 600 total and I haven't had a public release um, for I think it's almost three years now, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's cool. I I will admit I had no idea things would turn out that way. It was just a matter of how can I do this and still work at Northrop and you know have a family and do all this craziness at once, right? So do you mind explaining, I mean, I know me and Maria have been to your space, but can you kind of explain to the listeners, like, how your initial operation worked and, like, has it changed at all over the years? Like, what, is it, what does your space look like? Yeah. How did it start out? Yeah, so started out with about 300 wine barrels, essentially, um, ton of mixed firm beer. And um, those started, so... Let's, this is rewinding back to 2015. Those started getting ready 2017, 2018, and 2017 was the year I went out and did 55 collabs in one year. Yeah. You were you were one of the first, I think, sixth one. Um, so it all timed out basically where early 2018 I was starting to release beers of my own. And um, the space turned into a lot less sour beer over the next couple of years, um, especially once I got the fooders. And now <laughs> it is storage, you know, three levels of storage for bottles that are conditioning, as well as a ton of stout barley wine and these crystals I'm making. So um, the shift has definitely been sour to clean. Um, almost entirely. I would say the last big sour run I did was Coachella last year for the Run the Jewels collab I did. Right. And, um, yeah, those beers aren't in near the demand they were. Um, no. You know, you see the, the breweries around here that are known for it that are now depending on lager and IPA sales. So right. that, yep. that kind of made my bulbs go off to pivot without um necessarily broadcasting that i was so you you pretty much started out as a hundred percent sour and then started breaking in stouts and now you would say probably the swing is 90 percent stout and 10 percent sour yeah i would almost say 95 and 5 even really does does everything you do would you say under the horse brand do you think it still touches oak so I do fresh stouts now probably like once a quarter. Um, so 
as you know, like we've done day dolphin in the past and things like that. If I make a stout that's fresh, it's going to be either something that hasn't necessarily been done before or just like extreme excess. Like that beer, for example, used a different kind of sugar that both of us had ever used and various amounts of coconut. So trying to like push the envelope with those. And if they work, translate that to the barrel aged right. beers in the future because right. I don't necessarily want to those <laughs> with a new method. Through all of this, I mean, even when you still had the full-time job, you've basically been yep. essentially a one-man show. Like, have you ever yeah. had the, ha, like have you ever had the thought to like bring on other people to take some of that work off your shoulders, like off your plate? For sure, um, I am definitely a control freak on on that side. Um, you know, I think the the model where I make money. Yeah. is having a couple tap and selling lager and IPA over the counter. Right. Um, it's a matter of me doing that at some point. Um, I've had, so two guys used to work for my wife and her recycling business, Mike and Kevin, and they have, they volunteered at my beer festival. Like if I'm needing them to meet somebody for a delivery, like they'll come, they help me at most bottle pickups if my family is not there. Um, so there's definitely friends that have helped along the way and, uh, definitely people out there that I trust. It's just, I don't know, from a lifestyle perspective, like the idea of opening a tasting room right now is, is very daunting. To oh, me. I know. I, I would agree with that. It's, uh, Yeah. And nowadays times, it's it's definitely, uh, it's a load to think about just opening a tasting room. You know what I mean? It's like, I think the days of... Just just a tasting room? Right. Yeah. yeah. You need food. Yeah. yeah. At least. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we talked about this earlier today, me and Maria. And it's, you need other components and everything else. And like, it's just a lot more that goes into it. It's not like the days like here, you know, like we have food vendors that pop up, but like, would we benefit from actually having food in house, you know, versus like back in the day, it was like, yeah, Hey, you can just have a tap room. No problem. You know what I mean? People come in just to drink beer and they'll stay there. And that's really, it's all changed. You know what I mean? It's, and it's just really trying to morph to that. I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I think the days of the industrial park brewery visits are done by me, especially, um, you know, rewind 10 years. And I can remember like, Oh, we're going here and this one's, you know, a couple blocks away and we can hit four. And now I think for craft brewers to really excel, at least in my area, you got to have a place with incredible foot traffic. You obviously have to have the name, but, um, some kind of exciting food component, whether it's a truck or something in house, like, yep. For example, I with you guys, when you do stuff with Ted's, like I hear people from California like, oh, I've seen that on Instagram. I can't wait to eat that right. um, when they're in Florida. Right. So it's kind of like it went from a, hey, I'm going to sell amber over my counter in my roll-up door that's essentially like a storage facility in a 20-unit multiplex right. to I'm going to be on the main drag of a big city and a lot of tourists and um you know, you're going to have locals, but it, I don't feel like it's a local driven thing anymore. I, no. you know, you walk into no. my, my local bottle craft 
and you can buy Green Cheek and North Park and Sante Darius and Alvarado Street and all this stuff. And like when you and I were getting into beer as beer nerds, you know, a decade and a half ago, those options weren't there. You had to go somewhere to have a fantastic beer. The bottle shops, you know, they were dependent. Yeah, they had Cantillon and cool stuff, more cool stuff from like overseas and imports, but the amount of amazing craft beer you can buy in a can or bottle at a shop now is mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, it almost Yeah, but it also make it almost makes it like you don't have to go to these breweries anymore because why? I can just go to the bottle shop and get whatever I want now. Yeah. Right. So that but that's why I like that exactly. food component. Because if have you right, been yeah. to um Finback in Brooklyn, their new spot? Yeah, like his mom's doing her dumplings, which are amazing. Okay, no, and they're killing it. They're freaking killing it. So it's it's like you said, like if it's a cool food concept, then like that's the main draw, and then the beer is like secondary to that, which is wild. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, North Park. I think it's been in since they opened the one in North Park proper, but they've had the massive sausage kitchen connected to it. And um, I know friends of mine that aren't necessarily into beer just went to eat there. And while they're there, they're going to have a couple beers. So I think having that food component huge. And, you know, I grew up going to brew pubs, like pizza port is where I wanted to go. When I visited from LA down here, they had great pizza and amazing IPA and it's all under one roof. I, you know, to go along with the foot traffic versus the industrial park thing, getting around um, is, you know, you, you don't want to walk from industrial park to industrial park. No. You want to be downtown or on a, on a busy street with a bunch of other stuff around you. Right. That's going to be difficult when I do open a tasting room because, you know, coastal California here, I'm looking at like a minimum of 10,000 a month. And I mean, that's like bare bones, probably the starting point. Um, and that's just a lot of over to take on Yeah, when you're talking the volume of beer I make. So right. yeah, it's, uh, I think that's always been kind of a hang up of mine. Yeah. What is your model for getting beer out there? Like where do people find your beers? Like, I mean, you, you have been called the hardest working man in craft beer because of the number of collaborations that you do. What is, mm-hmm. Like, what is the most that you have done in a year? I think you've mentioned it before, and I know I, I know the answer to that. But like, uh, right? Why do you think that like beyond collabs, right? Why are those important to you? But yeah. also, like, once you do these collabs, how can people find these beers? Yeah. So I think for me, so yeah, so fifty-five was the most I did in the year, and that was twenty seventeen. Um, I think I think I we had, I think we had a, a third. I, I think we had a running competition. <laughs> yeah, I remember that with Dan at Full Point. Yeah. Um, I do like a third or a quarter of that a year now. Um, right. Collabs for me, I think they're important because, for example, a person in Florida to get my beer has got to be in my club, and they have to have a proxy that will ship them the beer or meet up with them at some point. So it's not easy. Um, right. And I don't have a tasting room to steer people to. So a collab is great because I can be like, hey, I was in Miami four weeks ago, you know, in a month, go check out Jay Wakefield. They're going to put on the new Boss Tycoon or, you know, it's that being able to 
point somebody in a direction to drink my beer is awesome. Um, my beer, the only way you've been able to get it is you get 12 included beers when you sign up for the club that begins every June. Right. And then you have the right to purchase anything um, throughout the whole year. Nice. But that's it. The, one of the beers we did for well, both of the last ones, I feel like. So the cashew beer and the um, coconut beer I mentioned before, yep. those were nightmare yields. So I barely had enough to sell one per member of mine. Right. So that leaves me in a position to be like, well, the only person trying that is one of the 400 people that were able to buy it. And right. hopefully they open with friends and family. Oh, yeah. So, oh, I know. Yeah, yeah it, I it think that's tough. struggle. <clears throat> So, I mean, yeah, I mean, all that's been a tougher road to kind of sled coming down these last couple of years. And I think I think it's it's kind of important that we kind of get back to that of doing collabs, maybe on not on the same plane of 45 to 55, 55 collabs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that I mean, that year as well. I mean, dude, I was in Europe for almost six weeks. How many you know, points and, did you? Uh, oh, no, my miles. My, uh, did I mean, you rack up? Pro- Probably the same as me because my frequent flyer was through the roof that year. Yeah, you know, I used to do um, Southwest mostly because I was doing most stuff in the States. Now, like with two kids and stuff, I kind of just book what's cheapest and most um, yeah. what makes most sense time. Yeah, um, yeah I, think, I think collabs are more important than ever, not yeah. from a quantity perspective, right. but like really connecting consumers or you know, the older consumers in the industry are bored. Yes. And the newer ones want something fresh every single time. Yep. I think that goes hand in hand. I think the days of going to a festival and doing a collab the, the day before and staying two days after, like, that's just not in my future. No, I don't but, think it's a lot um, of people's futures. No. You know, this past year, I got to go to Alaska twice to Anchorage and, like, focus on the collabs themselves and i hadn't done that in years like it's always doing something else while i'm somewhere you know yep and that was refreshing kind of opened my eyes to what i think i need to do and what i want to do and um don't get me wrong like i miss the place is gone now but i always think of that dinner we had with you two and sean at nomad oh yeah and like those times that i will cherish and those those don't translate into a beer necessarily right but like looking back those times i don't really foresee many situations like that happening no i would agree i would agree i think the landscapes change for sure and you know maybe for the better and and you know now we find a new road and path forward but i do have one last question for you so yeah i i know you and you are clearly someone who loves brewing you know, it was almost a gift from your parents. What is it that you specifically love about craft brewing beyond the business side of things? Um, you know, I'm just a beer nerd first and foremost. I still am. Like, people don't know. Like, I go to Bottlecraft like once a week. I grab what's <laughs> new. Right. I, I'm very similar to the 21-year-old self. Um on the flip side of that on brewing, I, you know, I think it took me until about now to really dial in where I wanted my barrel aged stouts and stuff. Cause it was kind of a, a learning process those first few years on the bigger scale. And that's kept me hungry and 
really wanting to, you know, kind of master it um, and just trying new things. Um, there's always a way to make things better, I think. Um, and that comes from talking with people like you and, and other great brewers in the industry and seeing, you know, what new methods or um, products are out there. And, you know, it might be as simple as swapping out like Maris Otter with Turo on a, on a beer that you've been making for 10 years that you think is great, but it can be extraordinary just with that little tweak. So um, I don't think beer or brewing is ever going to get boring for me. Um, I think um, there's certain parts where that fire's still lit, and I'm definitely jaded on others. But um, I won't change in the in the respect that you're making a product that maybe one percent of people is going to enjoy. So it's got to be something that you are really proud of. And I think I will, you know, stick to doing, you know, that. I, you know, I struggled with the Crisdale if anyone was going to drink it because I thought it was cool, but you know, no idea until I got the first one to my club members. And even the first few positive feedbacks, I was like, heck yeah, I'm going to go brew more now and I'm going to find out a way to make this better. And there's going to be stuff like that for as long as I do this, yep. probably into my 50s, 60s, if I continue to do it. So right. I, to answer the question in summary, I think I just love beer. <laughs> I'm a nerd. Yeah. I always have. Well, that's awesome, man. And, well, I really appreciate your time, Kyle. This Thanks, is, uh, Kyle. I'm glad that we actually got to get this done. And thank you for your time. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's always good talking to you, man. It's good seeing you. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is the Director of Insights for Signature Brands, the parent company of POS, the iconic Easter egg dye maker. Founded in a neighborhood drugstore in Newark, New Jersey, Paws has been a beloved Easter tradition for millions of Americans for over 140 years. How did they become such a ubiquitous part of Easter in America? We're about to find out. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Lauren Borba. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. So we're actually very excited to have you on the show today. I mean, like, who doesn't remember boiling eggs, setting up the cups with water, white vinegar, and the dye tablets? I mean, I remember doing that a lot as I was growing up through my childhood, you know, and then trying to write on the <laughs> on the eggs with crayon before coloring the eggs. Yeah. You know, I mean, all such great memories, I think, growing up. I mean, I'm sure it's been, I mean, Maria, I know you joined in on this one as well. It's been a long time. <laughs> but, but, but so much fun. No, so I agree. much fun. I used to I beg mean, my parents to buy me the, yeah. the, the kits. I mean, I did it with my kids, too. So it's, it's something that it definitely is a cherished memory that you kind of pass on down through the line. So let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. Who was William Townley? Sure. So William Townley um, actually owned a drugstore in the 1800s um, in Newark, New Jersey. And he is actually the one who founded and really created um, egg dyeing kits. Um, what he was finding is that the local children and families were, were dying Easter eggs. So he found a way to make it easy and accessible. Um, and he started selling actually food uh, egg dye kits in uh, 1881. Wow. Uh, to, you know, really to the community and the, the local kids and families. 
Um, so he started out with really this uh, um, egg dye that you'd add a little bit of vinegar and water and made it really easy for everyone to uh, to do the fun activity. Nice. So yeah. how, how did people, I mean, how did they used to dye their eggs before Mr. Townley started selling his dye kits? Yeah, so really there were fairly limited options, but you can even, you know, do some natural food coloring using turmeric and cabbage and things like that. So that was really the kind of the power of, of what cause was back then. And even now is that it just made it so much more easier and accessible and took kind of the, the work out of it and made it easier for the families to, to really do this fun activity. So how did he come up with the name pause or P A A S? Yes. Yep. So pause. So Mr. Townley's neighbor, um, who was uh, Dutch, I believe, uh, called Easter Pawson. So he took that and shortened it to to pause. So that's really where the name originated. So again, really kind of the community and the neighbors and the family uh, really is what what kind of created this so kind of like- this brand even back then. In Spanish, it's Feliz Pascuas. So, really? Yeah. Oh. Pass, okay. peace, pause, pause. <laughs> you know, I think in Italy it's the same thing. Right, right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah. do you do you know what was actually in those first kits when they first started selling them? So it was a, a dye that you would then again mix with the vinegar and water. Um, but I'm I'm not sure kind of what the formulation of that dye was back then. So. I guess really out of the whole thing, out of the kit, it was really the innovation of the dye tablet that really kind of started the whole yes. chain. Exactly. So, and he's the one that formulated that? Yes, he's the one that formulated that. Yep. I kind of, you know, I guess I kind of feel like the, the kits haven't changed much since I was a kid. Have the kits been updated at all, or are they still that classic style kit from back in the day? Yeah. So um, the kits have absolutely evolved. You can still buy, you know, kind of classic and deluxe kit that really is what we all kind of grew up with, right? With those those dye tablets and the copper uh, egg dipper. Right, right, yeah. My kids fight over, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they love that copper dipper. Um, so uh, we used in the stickers and the crayons, you know, uh, the magic crayons, so you can right on the egg before you dye it. So we still have those more traditional kits available. But really what Paws has been working to do is really also evolve those kits. So um, we have done things more into um, dye, you know, fun ways to dye your eggs with like shaking color, right? So it's kind of this process where you put the eggs and the dye in a bag with uh, kind of a rice component and you shake it and it makes the the egg look really cool after or our, um, our uh, color whip which uses almost like a shaving cream, like whipped cream, that you roll the egg in this cream and the dye, and it makes this really cool marbling effect. Um, we also evolved to get into more thematic type, right? So you can dress up your eggs as superheroes or forest friends. So really that that play factor that kids love wow. to do with eggs. Um, but really what's I think most exciting is the, the past two years, Pause has gotten into STEAM learning. Um, with our new platform called Experiments, so see what we did there. Um, <laughs> can you? T- can, I mean, do you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, your your new Experiments kits? I mean, yeah. like, w- what are they, and how they've been received by the consumers so far? 
Yeah. So uh, last year we entered really into the market with our first experiments, kind of dipping our toe in to see what what consumers thought of this, because it branches out a little bit from your more traditional. We we launched our active volcano kit. So it's this uh, literally what it sounds like. It's this kind of cup that the kids then use foam accessories to make that cup look like an actual volcano or, you know, an Easter volcano, if you will. Um, And uh, they apply to the eggs uh, this um, this kind of paste, if you will, that has dye in it. And then you drop that paste egg into the volcano and it erupts with vinegar. And <laughs> after the eruption happens, you use that amazing copper dipper to take your egg out. And it really creates this kind of like, again, more of a marbling effect on wow. the egg with different colors and um, it's a huge hit with my kids. I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old um, who even last night we were, we were dying eggs. They were fighting. That's amazing. Over the oh, that is know. amazing. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like we missed out on a lot f- since I was a kid. I mean, <laughs> it, it also sounds like you guys put a lot into R&D as far as developing new, new kits and new ways to dye the eggs. I mean, how much time do you guys actually invest to, into R&D for, the, for these kits and stuff? Yeah, R&D as well as insights. That is actually one of our biggest passions is listening to the consumers, learning what they want right. um, outside of your kind of traditional. So how can we how can we bring the tradition to them? Because um, that's really the most important thing, but bring it to them in a different way. So when uh, we talk to consumers and focus groups and really our investment in insights, um, we heard this like, want and love and passion for STEAM learning, especially as you consider the age of the kids, right? Right. Who who really die eggs. Um, So from there, we've developed the active volcano. So our innovation and R&D team are, they are brilliant and they have had so much fun really expanding into this experiment. So trying out different things and, you know, just scouring the web, talking to families, looking on Pinterest, seeing really what, what people are just organically doing. And then through pause, really what William Townley did is how can we bring what families are doing in a Pinterest type of way, but bring it easily to families, make it convenient for mom, make it easy, you know, to sit down at the table, frustration free and, and make that active volcano. So what, what is your like target demographic for like children's ages that you typically go after? Like what, what is that yeah. age range that you guys are mostly after? Yeah. So the great thing about this is, frankly, it is all family. So because there, it is rooted in such deep kind of emotions and traditions, um, it is a family activity. But that family spans beyond just your immediate, right? Kind of beyond just mom and dad doing it with the kids. And really, grandma gets involved. Um, right. <laughs> I was dying eggs last night with my kids, but my mom was actually here. So they were doing it with Nana and just seeing that kind of imprint of, of the tradition, the nostalgia made my heart warm. But really, as you think about kind of the sweet spot with kids, it tends to be, you know, I'd say, frankly, anywhere from one years old up to, you know, kind of 10, 12, kind of even preteens. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I would say so. I think it would last into the teens for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and especially with the innovations that you're talking about with the volcano and and then the superheroes and everything that you're involving. I mean, is do you guys try to roll out a new brand every one to two years, three years at that? 
Yeah, we're constantly refreshing what we're going to consumers with, really making sure that that we're keeping up to date and keeping um, kind of relevant and and really what what people want to do. So we're constantly refreshing the different thematics and different dye techniques, um, but really this experiments platform uh, the past year and now we're in year two uh, is kind of our first biggest branch out to do something that's even different. So nice. even within experiments, we have um, we have the active volcano. We have this really cool pendulum painting kit uh, that's new this year. So I don't know if you've seen that. On, how, like, how does that TikTok. work? So it has this... Um, uh, I'll call it a, a device, right? So it's this kind of uh, plastic device that you kind of set up and you push in. And um, from the middle of that is a cord with a paint bucket on it. Really? And you put eggs underneath, you fill up the paint bucket with paint, <laughs> you pull it back and you let it go. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So that one, again, we did that one last night too. Uh, big hit. And that one comes out really cool because you get this kind of pattern across all the eggs with the paint bucket. Um that's awesome. So really, really cool, fun stuff. And and those even, you know, kind of branching out to even kids who feel like they're aging out a bit to bring that that kind of funness. You know, trying to keep everybody to... still engaged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You were about to mention TikTok. Is that like a big way that, that people are seeing your products? Yeah, so we are actually partnering with some um, influencers even just to, you know, make sure and, and really it's it's that family activity so making sure too that you know tiktok and and who we're we're speaking to are, are the people who um you know who who really are going after that that memory and tradition so yeah at, at this point in time in 2023 i mean how many different types of kits are you selling in would you say that like over the decades and years that like the colorways and design elements have changed and like what kind of like where are we kind of sitting with all that in, in nowadays terms versus like when I was yeah. growing up, you know, growing up in the 80s, I'm sure. Like, you know what I mean, it's a lot <laughs> different from then till now, you know what I mean? But the great part is that actually some of that has stayed the same. So we still have our traditional deluxe kit and classic kit. Those are what. I, you know, I grew right. up on, exactly. you grew up on. So we keep that really traditional because again, this is, there's so much deeper to emotions and nostalgia in this. So we want to be able to continue to, to, to really give the consumers that nostalgia, give them the kit that they grew up on, but also evolve into really cool, fun stuff as well. Right. So you can have your traditional um, dye tablets that, you know, you add the vinegar and, and you draw the cram, but then if you want to, roll your eggs and dye in whipped cream and make just a more fun pattern. We got those too. So we offer a pretty broad portfolio. Um, and again, constantly refreshing and looking for, for new ways to, to really satisfy um, what consumers want. Nice. Okay. Do you know how many kits you guys sell every year approximately? Goodness. Uh, so in total, I believe about 16, 10, 16 million kits in total. <laughs> wow. So, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. and are you guys only in the U.S. or, I mean, does it go beyond that as well? So we, um, we are in the U.S. as well as Canada right now. Oh, so, so like yeah. part, part, yeah. majority of North America then. Yeah, North America. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> What do you think your guys' share of the Easter egg dye market is controlled by pause? 
Yeah, so we are, um, we are the share leader in this category. We have, um, you know, again, William Talmy really creating this category. It, it never existed before him. Right. Um, and we continue to, to really be the share leader uh, year after year. There have been kind of new uh, brands and, and, and uh, uh, kind of things entering into the market, but pause has really continued to, to shine. I would say so. I mean, especially if, you know, you're talking about pendulum paint bucket kits and volcanoes and everything. I mean, I don't, I mean, to me, that's like leading the way in R&D on some of these things to keep people engaged. And I think if no one else is doing that stuff, I mean, it's, it's hard to even compete with that, which is, to me, it's an awesome thing to hear you guys are doing these things to keep people engaged and to kind of keep that growth going and keep new consumers coming in. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun these past few years, uh, really developing this this new platform and even partnering with our you know retailers to make sure that um, they're you know getting the right assortment out. Um, you know, Walmart has really leaned into this, um, so it's been it's been a lot of fun, um, and it's it's also just exciting to see how the category stays true to its roots but continues to evolve as well. Do you think you guys have been affected by the cost of eggs? You know? So, yeah, as we've all heard this year, right, cost of eggs skyrocketed. I even saw some gifs about, like, guess we'll be painting, you know, rocks. <laughs> rocks. Year, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's, you know, absolutely consumers and just the population is facing a lot of kind of just financial hard times right now. And um, what we're finding though, again, really leaning into insights and just always talking to consumers and listening to them. Um, what we're hearing from them is um, that yes, egg prices are impacting this year, um, but there's a few different ways that they're actually responding to that. So uh, in some ways people are, because this is such a tradition, they don't right. want to just- They don't want to skip out well. on it. Yeah. yeah, some families are just choosing to dye fewer eggs this year. So instead of doing two, three dozen, they'll right. do a dozen, right? Um, but also what we are hearing and really what we've even been kind of talking back to consumers um, and helping them through this time is through what we call egg alternatives. So again, see what we did there. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> it's an egg alternative. <laughs> And really fun and just cost-effective ways that you can keep that moment um, of dying eggs because that's what it's about. It's about the of moment. Course, it's absolutely. Not about the egg, right? Um, ways that you can do that are a bit more cost-effective. So um, some retailers have dyeable eggs, right? Dyeable plastic eggs instead oh, of getting the real ones. Wow. Great point about dyeing the dyeable ones is you can actually then make them into like garlands to decorate. So you can decorate your house with it, right? You can take those eggs and... Put them on your your fireplace. Um, we're also talking to consumers about ways to dye um, things that aren't eggs. So, for instance, dyeing rocks um, is a, is a great way. Also, dyeing things like golf balls. My favorite, frankly, is dyeing coffee filters. Because really? If you think about it. So, coffee filters. They are a lot of them for not that much money. Exactly. Yeah, for me, what my kids are doing is dyeing the coffee filters and then actually creating flowers out of them. Oh. And we're going to, I'm going to use that as a centerpiece on the kids' table this year so that they can show, like, grandma, you know, and, and my nana that they made these coffee filter flowers that are now on the Easter table. We, so we, we might need a uh, tutorial on that one there. <laughs> yeah. <that's actually> pretty, <laughs> I think you're, I think you're actually giving, uh, 
giving Maria some inspiration for decorations so we could, you know, decorate your house later, right? Well, I mean, I don't have a fireplace, but I can, I <laughs> can make true. a We're wreath. Yes. I can make a wreath with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, you it, can make a coffee filter wreath would be, actually, that's a fantastic idea. I love that. Yeah. So, but again, it's all about, yeah. it's not about the egg. It's about, you know, sitting down at that table, having, you know, an hour, hour and a half with your family, just connecting in that moment, putting your phone down, really, right? This is a two-handed activity. It's time and decorating. So, I mean, it's, it's all kind of a, like, we've talked to a few other businesses, and, it, and it's kind of funny business in that you actually do pretty much all of your annual sales in about six weeks. Is that true? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. And in fact, about half of the sales are in the last eight weeks of the season. So wow. everyone rushes the week of basically the week of Easter. This week, this week, basically <laughs> yeah. everybody's running to go get the diet kits. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't bought them, go out and get them because they're going to start flying off the shelves. <laughs> so what do you guys do the rest of the year outside of that like annual sprint i would say yeah so there's to make the season successful there is so much work that goes into it so as we mentioned right starting with the insights and so you know really uh looking at the performance for how this easter closes we'll be digging into that finding out what's working where you know what the opportunities and areas of improvement are then from there, you know, talking to consumers if we need to, um, to, to really get into some of the whys behind. And then really our innovation R&D team keep running, the commercialization team working to make sure that all of these great ideas actually come to fruition into an actual product. So um, there is so much work that happens behind the scenes with, you know, a team that's really passionate and, and just an overall really great team. So. So like you had kind of said earlier when I asked you the question about like the window of when people buy these things, like this weekend is actually probably when majority of them use their pause kits, even if they mm-hmm. purchased them months ago. Yep. Can you give us some pro style tips for dyeing eggs that, you know, the listeners can then, you know, kind of use this week? Yeah. So honestly, one of my favorite kind of dye techniques is the, um, the, the color whip. So that's the one that has almost like a, a foam, like a whipped cream, shaving cream ish. Um, and you, you put the dye in it and you roll the eggs. My kids have loved that one. I think that's, that's probably one of my, my most favorite. So. Nice. And then do you guys, I, I guess a question I should have asked, like on your website or, on social media, do you guys actually have any kind of tutorials or anything for people to follow? Yes. Yep. So on our website, we uh, give you some, some tips and tricks just to make sure that the process kind of goes as easy as possible, you know, with making sure that you're either um, hard boiling the eggs or kind of, uh, you can blow the yolks out of the eggs. So it's kind of starting from there. Really? Um, yes. <laughs> so some people, um, instead of doing hard boiled, you can actually, because the hard-boiled eggs, if you're going to eat them, you need to keep them in the fringe. Right, right. Um, you didn't yeah, know Yeah, otherwise you can poke holes in the eggs. You and pierce a little hole and you blow it out. I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that. We used to do that two as kids. You, two holes. Two holes. Two. I would, yeah, because obviously it was one. You'd have to actually suck the yolk out of there. <laughs> and it would be yeah. kind of difficult. Be, yeah. I did not know that. That's interesting. 
Okay. Yeah. So actually in this kind of economy where we're looking to make sure that we use those eggs so that we can eat them and dye them, um, you know, that would actually be a great option this year. So you can make some scrambled eggs while you got, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was actually going to be another question. I mean, like, do you eat the eggs after you dye them? And obviously if you do, the recommendation is that after you dye them, put them in the fridge, right? Yes, correct. Yep, because if you're going to eat them, just like any other food product, you need to make sure that it's safe. So, yeah, we find that about two out of three consumers actually eat those eggs. So Now, don't eat the eggs if you're going to go and hide them in the yard and make the kids find right. them. Don't, you know, don't eat those eggs. But the ones yeah. in the fridge should be fine. Exactly. Like my, so as I mentioned, my kids dyed eggs yesterday and right. we put them out to kind of dry and display after and uh, put my daughter to bed last night and our dog comes in with one of the eggs in his mouth. Oh. <clears throat> Your dogs would oh, definitely. No, my dogs eat would eat them. I, cause I order regular eggs, but I also eat duck eggs. And I remember coming home after just ordering duck eggs and a whole carton of duck eggs gone that were raw. <laughs> and I'm like, who the like, who ate these things? <laughs> it was my dogs. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I did not know that they would eat eggs. So, like that. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, I have a golden retriever. So, she's, he's got a soft jaw. So, he uh, brought it up to us as a president to say goodnight. And I was like, we need to make sure because we did not refrigerate <laughs> them. They are displayed for us. Um, Don't eat these. Sure, put them on a shelf a little higher. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> I got one last question for you. Yeah. Most historians believe that tradi- like the tradition of painting or dyeing eggs dates, like, dates back to the 13th century. Why do you think it has been such an enduring tradition even in modern times from the 13th century? Yeah, honestly, I think it really dips into that nostalgia. And that's what we've heard over and over again. Like, this is what I did with my grandmother. This is what I did growing up with my mom, right? And it's so emotional and you want to pass that down. You want to, and even if you're not passing it down to your children, if you're still dying eggs, it just brings you back to to the memories of you sitting around that table, you know, with your family. Um, So I think that in a time, so Easter, as you think about it is, is a little chaotic, even in more recent times, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And right. we've heard it's becoming like a mini Christmas with all the decorations and the outdoor. Um, but really, as you think about it, and so much candy, right? As you think about it, dying eggs is that one moment that you can actually like put the phone down, take a moment, actually connect. Um, and that human connection has stayed true back to the you know 13th century. So that is that connection and the, and the tradition I think is what continues to, to make people die eggs each year, regardless again of, of what the egg looks like. It's the sitting down together that matters. So it's really, which I kind of dig and, and get into is really bringing that family time back together because you know, how hectic life is nowadays and how engaged people are on social media. It's really about that time of, <laughs> being together without phones and really just engaging into exactly. an activity together and focused on that family time. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That is, that is the, the root of this. And, um, it is even again, last night, me watching my kids die and do the pendulum with Nana, right. It just, it reminded me even of my growing up, it just made, made my heart warm. It made me smile to watch that, that happening. So. 
I have a quick question. Um, are there any uh, events that you're sponsoring that you'd like to shout out? I know you guys did the White House Easter egg roll for many years. I don't know if you're still doing that or any events you want to shout out? Yeah, so the White House um, egg roll is something that we have sponsored for, for years and years. So um, that's, a, that's a big one for us, um, and we are, we are proud to attend kind of each year. That's our, uh, that's our biggest event, really. Cool. And what is that event? I mean, they roll it on the White House lawn, right? Yeah. Yep. And that, uh, I believe we've been part of it for 30 years or so now. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has been a pleasure. And uh, I hope you guys have an amazing Easter weekend. Thank you for having me and go buy paws and decorate those eggs. Absolutely. I'm going to have to go. <laughs> oh, yes. And go to their website for tutorials. So please do that. Thank you very much. Exactly. All right. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Kyle Harrop and Lauren Borba, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at our new time, 6 p.m. Eastern time, on Business Radio 132, or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.